Hello and welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. My name is Nawid Jabarkil. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Mr. Joel Kaus to the program. Mr. Kaus is a special advisor to the International Energy Agency, commonly referred to as the IEA, specializing in energy markets and security. Previously, he was chief energy economist for Total Energy. Joel Kaus, welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. Thanks, Naweed. I'm I'm delighted to join you today for the podcast, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Let's start then with your role at the IEA. Just tell uh, our listeners a bit about what the IEA is focusing on. Uh, Some say it was established as a body to oppose OPEC. Well, the the IEA is at the heart of a a global dialogue on energy. Uh, And for example, Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, was at the G7 summit, uh, leaders summit in Tokyo this this past weekend, sorry, in Hiroshima this past weekend. Um, It's the analysis of data and policy recommendations that are done by the IEA that helps countries develop uh, their, their, their own secure, sustainable energy supplies for the longer term. Uh, the IEA was created in 1974 to help coordinate a uh, collective response to major disruptions in oil supply. This is not in opposition to OPEC, and the IEA has cooperated regularly with the organization during past periods of disruption. And a good example is what was done uh, between the IEA, the G20, and OPEC uh, in April, uh, April and May 2020 to try and help stabilize the market. Oil security remains a key aspect of the IEA's work that has expanded significantly now to to cover other energies like uh, gas, obviously, given the crisis that we've just gone through, but uh, also things like critical minerals and uh, uh, grid grid design for uh, supporting the development of renewables. Uh, The IEA recommends on policies to enhance reliability, the affordability and the sustainability of energies, and it takes an all energies, all, all fuels and all technologies approach. And it examines a different question concerning these technologies from a supply demand perspective, looking at energy efficiency, uh, demand side management, uh, the, the technologies, uh, the electricity systems, access to energy, etc. cetera. Uh, and since 2015, the IEA has opened up to emerging markets uh, in order to expand its global impact. And, and deepen its cooperation. And looking at oil markets, then uh, a lot of the uh, thought at the moment is that demand relies largely on China and India, those two economies. Is it as simple as that, do you think, or is the real picture much more complex? Well, oil demand is really driven by the economic well-being uh, of the world's populations, as the economic well-being improves and and China and India are good examples of that, that drives uh, increasing demand for oil. The recoveries, the recent recoveries in China and India have certainly helped to boost oil demand uh, in 2022 and 2023. And this year it will reach its highest level ever. Uh, Notably in the fourth quarter will be over 102 million barrels a day. Uh, And the strong rebound in air travel worldwide that we've seen since the reopening of China uh, in December last year, uh, will account for fully 50% of the growth in oil demand this year. So uh, that's that's complemented by expanding petrochemical activity uh, that is helping to provide a boost to overall demand. Uh, on the other hand, there are a number of factors that are helping to 
slow the growth in, in oil demand, uh, particularly in transport fuel demand. Average fuel efficiency uh, for the different vehicle fleets has improved. Uh, electric vehicle penetration has vastly accelerated across the OECD and China. Uh, uptake of biofuels continues to expand. All these factors have flattened growth in gasoline and diesel demand for cars, uh, and that will contribute progressively to a peak in road transport fuel demand sometime in the next uh, two to five years. And looking at the supply side of things, uh, India, China, both big buyers of Russian oil at the moment, the, the market seem to have adapted somewhat to what's happened in Ukraine over the past year or so. Uh, also, the embargoes imposed by European nations on, on Russian oil and gas, but shipping costs have increased and Russia has discounted prices to try and secure markets in places like China and India. Is that a fair summary of, of, of recent events, do you think? Yeah, that I mean that that covers it. It's uh, oil markets have really adapted better and probably faster than many expected to the embargoes and restrictions that were imposed on Russia. Russian oil has continued to, small, to flow very smoothly to the markets. Uh, uh, crude and products has shifted away from the EU and G7 destinations where it was going prior to the invasion of the, of Ukraine. And it's now going to other buyers that are motivated by the large price discounts that they can get on, on the Russian oil. Um, the FOB, the free on board lifting prices for Russian oil have on average been below the G7 price caps uh, for crude and products since uh, December and February this year, with the exception of April when crude was 12 cents above the price cap. But um, uh, the, the changes in flows have certainly driven increases in tanker freight rates. Russian oil travels further, uh, while EU and G7 supply comes from more remote locations. This has locked up a lot more tankers. Uh, on the other hand, the costs have eased somewhat as new tankers have been delivered into service over the course of 2022 and 2023. Uh, and many of the older tankers are no longer retiring, but are operating as part of the shadow fleet that is transporting the sanctioned barrels for Russia, for um, for Iran and for Venezuela. And zooming out a little bit and looking at demand, perhaps more long term, electric vehicles are one uh, major factor that's weighing on a lot of people's minds, particularly the rise in sales in the European Union, for example, and China as well. Do you think it's going to lead to, to a worldwide reduction in demand for gasoline moving forward? Yeah, we, I, I think we definitely see that happening. The acceleration in, in sales is, is really astonishing in, in, the, in the last uh, two to three years. Uh, and we're now reaching uh, sales that represent uh, between five and 10% of uh, world, uh, worldwide sales, much higher obviously in, in, in Europe or, or the US and, and China. And that, that penetration is, is clearly having an impact on, on gasoline demand. We see growth in gasoline demand this year, but much of that growth is driven by uh, China coming out of, of COVID, uh, by what's happening in India, uh, but in, in the OECD, uh, it's flattening out very clearly, uh, and the EV fleet will contribute to a, a peaking in, in gasoline demand sometime in the next two to five years. Looking at what OPEC Plus and other alliances producers are doing, they seem to be taking a more aggressive stance in terms of protecting uh, their interests over the past 18 months or so. Does that pose a threat, do you think, or is it fully understandable? No, that 
in in some ways it's understandable and uh we've uh you know we we've seen uh their their desire to avoid another collapse in prices like we saw back in 2020 which had really quite a brutal effect on those countries and and was destabilizing in many ways so their efforts to ensure that the market remains balanced uh, in the face of uh, uncertain oil demand trends is is understandable. The concern that the IEA has on that account is that it uh, at this point in time with uh, the rapid increase in other costs for consumers, uh, sustaining above average oil costs uh, is challenging for those consumers. Uh, that's understandable. Uh, the other concern that we have is is the need to allow a rebuilding overall of oil stocks, which are essential to uh, confronting, uh, as the IEA is you know, logically concerned about, that's part of their mandate, is confronting uh, disruptions in oil supply when it comes, if they come. And picking up on that point, a lot of these economies, countries, governments are focused on diversifying their economies. The thing that's looming over all of those is uh, the idea of peak oil. Uh, when do you think we'll see it or has it already happened? Well, the IEA's uh, scenarios see a peak or a plateau in oil demand by around the turn of the century. Uh, and that's that's in the, the World Energy Outlook step scenario, which is the scenario that's closest to a business, uh, business as usual scenario. Beyond that, the more aggressive scenarios from a, a, an energy transition point of view see a, an earlier peak than that. So, yeah, it, it's coming. Uh, but when it, we see it as a peak or a plateau, that, that means that there's many years of, of oil demand uh, ahead of the market. And looking at how companies are responding then, do you think there's sufficient investment in, say, upstream production at the moment to balance the, the supply with demand moving forward? That, that's a very good question. Um, one of the real issues today is cost inflation uh, in the energy services sector. Um, and cost inflation has limited the impact uh, in developing the capacity, despite the fact that oil industry, the oil industry is in, continues to invest substantially. Uh, the oil services industry's capacities are limited in some sectors. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, I think if the oil industry threw more money at developing uh, oil and gas reserves, it might simply aggravate uh, inflation today. So as those cost constraints ease, I think each dollar invested will probably do a lot more. Uh, so at this time, the IEA scenarios don't see a near-term a near -term issue in terms of cost constraints if, if the cost constraints drop uh, and if investment budgets remain sustained at, at current levels. And U.S. production is one factor that's uh, really been exceptional in the last year, in last decade rather, in terms of changing markets. Uh, we're seeing some problems there over in the States, the Permian field, for example, in the southwest of the country, it's hit a production plateau. If there is uh, a need for more demand there, uh, where do you think additional supply will come from? Will it be a matter of looking back towards Middle Eastern producers? Well, uh, if if we look at the U.S., uh, you know, it's it's a phenomenon that's a it's a treadmill where new wells are constantly needed to offset the, the steep initial decline curves of the existing wells. So the the overall volume production has to eventually reach a point as as it grows and grows and grows, 
where the equilibrium between drilling new wells uh, only just keeps pace with those decline rates. So logically, that, that will come at some point in time. It's not obvious that we've hit that plateau today. Um, the slower demand growth that the IEA is expecting in the coming years and, and possibly a, a plateau by around 20, uh, 2030 will certainly help offset some of the risks related to such a peak in U.S. production. We are seeing substantial growth uh, in production uh, coming out of Latin America, in Guyana, in, in Brazil. We're seeing uh, you know, steady steady growth uh, in the Middle East, which, uh, which is certainly a key factor to uh, offsetting the, the growth in demand relative to any plateauing in, in American production. I think the risk in, in all of this is, is what's the likely outlook for, for Russian production in the years to come. Uh, will sanctions have or, or not have an impact in terms of Russian production and, and the flows of oil, crude end products out of Russia in the coming years? And I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the Middle East. Uh, this region, traditionally a major setter of prices, the financial needs of governments here, uh, seen as low-cost oil producers, is that still a major factor in uh, setting global oil prices? Well, yeah, I mean, as we said earlier, OPEC production cuts have helped sustain prices that are around their, their current levels in recent months. Uh, obviously, the global macroeconomic factors have, have contributed to, to much of the uncertainty. Uh, you know, there, there's a, an entire paper sphere uh, of the oil market that uh, is a ma major driver in terms of the uh, the price perspectives, uh, and we can see that the, the paper sector is is hesitant now, uh, given the, the macroeconomic uncertainties. There's also the impact of the U.S. dollar exchange rate as the U.S. dollar gets stronger because of the, the interest rate differentials. But clearly, OPEC remains prominent in, in setting, the, uh, setting the price by helping to set the balance in the market. And there are uh, other potential threats, uh, maybe regulation being one of them. The European Union, it's proposed a carbon border adjustment mechanism at the moment to tax uh, high carbon emission source fuels. Do you think such mechanisms will work practically and politically as well, given the differences and uh, what's involved in terms of implementing them? Well, the, the mechanism has been adopted. So it will enter into a first, what they call transition phase uh, in October 2023, uh, after which uh, you know, the markets will begin to determine what's been imported, what's the carbon content that's been imported by the different organizations in order to develop a, a tracking of, of the, uh, the carbon uh, uh, transfers across the European borders. And then in January 2026, uh, it, will trend, it will move to a new phase where taxes will be levied uh, on the carbon volumes being uh, moved into Europe. And the, and the taxes will correspond to the level of the EU ETS uh, carbon tax. Uh, so in the meantime, the mechanisms around that have to be sorted out. Uh, there's a lot of thinking going into that and, and, and more detail on that will be announced uh, in the coming months before October 2023 so that people know what they're doing with. Obviously, this has garnered a lot of political sensitivity with, uh, with our trading partners. Uh, on the other hand, there's uh, you know a certain amount of pragmatism that 
partners have, are showing, and, and notably China, in trying to put forward um, a degree of effort to show that they are trying to reduce the carbon content, uh, the, uh, their emission content uh, of their own exports to the EU. And many people would look at some of the results coming out of international oil companies and say perhaps this is a good time to be leading a company in the sector. But if, if you were uh, thinking like a CEO of a major international firm, what factors do you think would be most important when making upstream oil investments, investments that many see as necessary? I mean, would you, for example, look at rapid payoff projects? I, I think uh, <clears throat> CEOs are always looking for uh you know the low-hanging fruit the easy gains if there's a, a a rapid project a satellite field to be developed uh at low cost uh that'll pay off in short order i think they're willing to do that but i think most ceos looking for sort of longer term uh production profiles which are necessary to to sustain a company's activity they're looking for fields that have on the one hand the lowest possible cost as well as low emissions, because as you pointed out with the uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, they will be looking at what the emissions, the related emissions are uh, for the oil imported into, into the EU, whether it's for petrochemical uses or, or continuing production of fuels until however long the, the uh, EU needs to have those fuels. And that will be an issue for, for most other countries and for, for the, uh, the reputation of the companies as well. So it's it's a combination of low cost, low emissions, uh, and and that is is those are the two top priorities right now. And just picking up on that, the metrics for uh, a national oil company, perhaps where the thinking needs to be a lot more strategic than just shareholder interest or or bottom line. What would be your um, uh, recommendations there, or what factors would you consider when making oil investments uh, from the perspective of an NOC? Uh, particularly with regards to stranded assets and the changes to sustainability? Well, again, uh, obviously low cost is a priority when we're talking about stranded assets, uh, but also low cost means that uh, the lowest cost producers are going to be the longest in the market as, as time goes on. But they also have to be low emission producers uh, in order to ensure that they continue to have access to those markets that are concerned about uh, availability of low low carbon products, low emission products. I, I think the projects also have to be scalable. In other words, they, they look at it and they say, I, I want to do this in units so that I can keep pace with the evolution of demand. Uh, and I think they have to be adapted so that they provide the greatest benefit to the producer countries from a, an economic and, and a social point of view. And just lastly, then, uh, obviously, sustainability, a major issue in the industry, as you've mentioned now. Do you think that there, there is enough scope, perhaps, for the sorts of investments required, the type that the IEA says are needed towards renewables, while also meeting the needs of populations and that thirst for electricity or uh, whatever fuel source there, there is? I think the uh, you know the IEA has said that we need to invest uh, almost four trillion dollars uh, in the energy transition by 2030. Uh, at this point, we see about two trillion uh, being invested. Clearly, uh, we have to up our game in terms of the amounts invested, and that that's all energies, all energies and all solutions. So there's there's a lot of work that has to be done. Uh, part of it is uh, the companies themselves in terms of investing more 
uh, in the energy transition. Uh, but part of it is uh, also from the uh, the consumer governments in terms of creating the opportunities to make those investments uh, profitable when they come. I think uh, there's been some terrific work that's been done in the EU, uh, Fit for 55 uh, and the, the green energy uh, solutions. There's also the uh, uh, investment, uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which has attracted a huge amount of investment and is creating a lot of emulation from governments around the world. And I think we'll see that uh, bring forward more capital for investment as uh, tax incentives and other measures are provided by governments to attract those investments. The thoughts of Joel Kaus, the Senior Advisor at the International Energy Agency. Joel, thank you very much for your insights into the workings of the IEA and your views, of course, on the future of the oil markets. Uh, the Alatea Foundation very much looks forward to speaking with you again in the future. And thank you all very much for listening. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and YouTube.